Mormon Stories Podcast depends entirely upon the voluntary contributions of you, its listeners. To keep Mormon Stories alive, please consider donating today at mormonstories.org. To make a contribution to Mormon Stories, just click on the Make a Donation button at the top right of the mormonstories.org website. For all this and more, please check out mormonstories.org. And thank you for listening. There are theories that go around that Joseph Smith um, was the was the author of the Book of Mormon, or or that he collaborated with others to produce the book. Um, and you you talk about that in in your um, in your book Roughstone Rolling. But just to recap, you know the the typical Grant Palmer or even Fon Brody type of argument is that you know at least I think Grant Palmer would say that like twenty percent of the Book of Mormon is word for word from the King James Bible, and that even we know what version of the King James Bible Joseph Smith had and that some of the errors that were in that edition of the King James Bible actually made it into the Book of Mormon. So it's clear that to some extent he was taking from an existing Bible and putting those words in the Book of Mormon for a good chunk of it. A lot of people like to say that that, um, Joseph's father had dreams just like Lehi's dream and somehow that makes it in and Joseph had brothers and a relationship with his brothers. There was a lot like Nephi and his relationship with his brothers. So they kind of say that Joseph Smith family stories make up part of the Book of Mormon. And then they talk about how um, some of the the wars with Andrew Jackson, and I don't know what war was going on back in the in the 1830s, but you know there are people who even try to tie the battles in the Book of Mormon to actual battles and formations that happened in the early 1800s. And then there's all the anti-Masonic rhetoric that, that people talk about. Um, because there was some really uh, uproar about Masons and secret combinations generally, and that somehow maybe that made its way into the Book of Mormon, um, along with, um, oh, and, and then the view of the Hebrews, that there was this book called the View of the Hebrews and other books that speculated that were written five to ten years before the Book of Mormon was produced, um, that... Uh, even Oliver Cowdery apparently attended a congregation of the author of the book View of the Hebrews, and the book of the the, the book The View of the Hebrews has uh, you know a, a light race and a dark race, or a good race and a bad race, and the bad race kills off the good race, and th- they come from Hebrew origins, etc. And people sort of so this is sort of the 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 attempt to try and explain this this marvelous and wonderful book. Um, and on top of that, a lot of people like to throw in the anachronisms that there's steel, that there shouldn't be steel in the Book of Mormon, there shouldn't be horses, there shouldn't be chariots, and all these helmets and swords, no one's ever found one. Um, so, you know, there's a lot of people who attack the Book of Mormon from all different angles. None of them can come up with a, an explanation of how it got created, but there certainly are a lot of people who feel like they can really um, come up with some of the puzzle pieces that that start to tell that story. So, you know, what what do you what would you give as a rebuttal to someone who's inclined to believe those things or or be concerned about them? How how could you tell them either here's where those things are wrong or here's a way to say yeah, those all those things were part of what informed 
Joseph Smith's ultimate production of the book. That the Lord used those to help him create the book. How, how would you respond to all that? I know it's a lot to respond to. It's, uh, it's a huge issue, and I'm not sure there is a single response where you can simply flick the switch and say, no, all of this um, doesn't bear. The, the fact is that um, when I read the Book of Mormon, I, it just always seems to me much larger in scope, much broader in conception, much more intricate and peculiar than uh, any of these theories can quite account for. They're all the, the parts, but the parts, um, to my way of thinking, don't add up to the whole, which is uh, what he produced was another Bible. He produced an apocryphal Bible of Israelites coming to the New World and living their lives here. And so I think the question you have to ask is, um, why did this young person think he should write another Bible? And um, I suppose you could uh, think of answers and say, well, it was a confusing time. He's worried about skepticism in the world, and this is his way of proving there is a God. And I think Dan Vogel has some interesting ideas about his father. But um, they don't, from my point of view, add up to the Book of Mormon that I read when I read it. I just find intricacies and complexities in one dimension after another that are never fully, never accounted for. So even if you do believe that he had all these components in his mind, which has never been demonstrated, you can't prove it outside of the Book of Mormon that he was thinking about the war of 1812 or thinking about Freemasonry or what have you. You just have to surmise it's, it's in the air, so he must have breathed the air, and there it is. Uh, still, there is a step beyond that in which he composes it into this really fabulous narrative that goes on one character after another um, with politics and the military and this measuring system and a geography and economic order and so on and so forth it's uh, it's still a fabulous achievement and even if you granted everything that they say uh, these uh, analysts propose you'd still have to say it's a work of genius it is a work of genius and, and uh, you know we just keep finding one dimension after another uh, in that book that uh, you wouldn't expect to be there. So, um, all I would like to persuade people is that the facts don't compel you to uh, confess that Joseph Smith had to have made up that book simply by piecing together these little bits of the puzzle that were uh, in his culture at the time. The facts don't compel you. This is a decision you that can go either way. And you've got people who are well informed on both sides of the debate who see that that book differently. And uh, you're free. You are free to choose, and still have a, 
a, a respectable view of the evidence and and take things and all these things into account. So you're saying the evidence allows for sort of plausible deniability. You, you're yeah. not you're not compelled to conclude that it's true by sheer facts and evidence alone. And I'm well, sure I, you're, not, you're not compelled to by uh, evidence to conclude that it's fiction. I mean, it, it goes both ways. It's you you just can't. There's just not evidence enough on either side. Yeah, uh, you're right. Right. That's what I meant. Um. And I'm sure you'd add the spiritual, stepping out of your historian for a second, I'm sure you'd probably add that the, the spiritual confirmation you've received is a- additional evidence for you in favor, right? Yeah, I would I would say so. I mean, it's hard to know exactly what is spiritual confirmation. But um, I, I go along with Terrell Givens' view that this becomes a moral choice. Do you want... To live in a world where God speaks to a modern prophet. If you want to live in that kind of world with, and bear all the consequences of that, then uh, the Book of Mormon makes sense. If you don't want to live in that world, if you don't want God to be speaking to prophets and guiding them, then it doesn't make sense to uh, believe in the, in the Book of Mormon. But I don't think the facts compel you to go down one way or the other. Either way. Right. So is it a big waste of time for farms to try and prove it's true or for archaeologists to go try and dig things up? And is it a, fool, I, is it a fool's errand for anti-Mormons to try and disprove it? Should that whole dis- discourse just cease, in your opinion? No, I don't. I, I, I like anything that generates inquiry. And uh, this, the farm's desire to prove the Book of Mormon has generated huge amounts of inquiry. Mormons are studying things that they never in the world would learn about. And they, are, they gain great skill in sort of pulling this stuff together to prove their, the case. And um, I'm intrigued by it. I find it interesting. I, so I would say, no, that's very useful. The Anna-Mormons... I'm not quite sure what motivates some of them. I think it's a, a con- I think it's a concern that Mormons are horribly misled, but I, I'm never quite sure if that's their real desire is to straighten out Mormons. But the 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 Mormons for Jesus, I think, are do have a genuine religious urge. They think Mormons have lost the Savior and need to be brought back to him. But uh, I don't know what motivates uh, Dan Vogel or Brent Metcalf. I think it's more an intellectual quest than anything else. Maybe you don't have to uh, find a motive for them. Mm. Do, you, do you think the Book of Mormon, do you characterize it as containing the fullness of the gospel? Because um, it, you know, it doesn't seem to have much of what we characterize as Joseph Smith's full gospel when it comes to the three degrees of glory, of eternal marriage, of plural marriage, of baptism for the dead. I mean, there are all sorts of these major fundamental missions of the church type doctrines that aren't in there. But then when he gets to Nauvoo, they're there. And you're kind of wondering, if it contains the fullness of the gospel, why, why didn't it come with those in 1830? 
and why is it is it just a coincidence that Joseph developed those later um, when the book was produced before? Or, or do you just redefine what fullness means to mean an incomplete fullness? Well, I think that's a very good question. Uh, because sometimes we're unwilling to admit that uh, the gospel evolves and expands. Um, and it, when it certainly did evolve and expand. I think your second point, that we have to define fullness, what is the fullness of the gospel? And as is defined in certain parts of the Book of Mormon, it's essentially the atonement of Jesus Christ. So, um, the point about what it restores that was lost from the Bible, I think, is an interesting one. And part of that, I, I, that answer is, um, once again, Terrell Givens' dialogic revelation. The idea that humans actually do speak to God and he speaks back to them. That's in the Bible, but it certainly had been kind of squeezed out by Joseph Smith's time. So that revives a sense of God's immediacy in, uh, in human affairs. I also think that, uh, this is a little bit of a side point, that um, the Calvinist view of, the, of human nature had so taken over Protestantism that it was uh, the Book of Mormon was necessary as kind of a as a block against that view of no uh, human will, uh, effective human will, in uh, making choices that would contribute to your salvation. So there are are various parts of the gospel that didn't need to be restored, but it it was the fullness of the gospel, not the fullness of the doctrine. The doctrine kept growing, and I presume could continue to grow forever uh, in its complexity. Hmm. Okay. I'm going to ask you real quick to put on your... This this is probably the most important question I'll ask uh, today, maybe. Um, And I'm asking to take off your historian hat and definitely your official... Any any official hat or um, representation you might offer, and this is just a really personal question, fr- on behalf of people who are struggling, and that's that. There's some people who just say, "Look, the evidence doesn't add up that the Book of Mormon's historical. There's never been a sword or a helmet found. There's never been a chariot. The horses just aren't there. There's there's too much coincidence with all this stuff." I'll never be able to buy that the Book of Mormon, that there really was a Moroni, that there really was a brother of Jared in a barge with a with a cork in the top and the bottom. And, you know, it just doesn't add up. But, you know, to say that these people have to just leave the church then because they don't see the Book of Mormon as historical, I just see that as a disaster because I think that's, at a minimum, throwing the baby out with the bathwater. But, you know, there may be also very practical negative ramifications for people who make that decision with family and socially and occupationally, etc. So do you have any counsel just personally for someone who is not inclined to believe the Book of Mormon is historical but doesn't want to then conclude as well that they have to leave the church? Is there a middle way or a middle road for someone caught in that dilemma? Uh, Or do they just have to leave by conscience alone? They must withdraw. No, I think I, I agree with you. I think it would be a mistake to leave. I think when you give up the Book of Mormon, you give up a lot. 
and I hate to see that happen. I think there are other ways of interpreting the Book of Mormon that don't require you to give it up. Uh, but on the in favor of what you're saying as a life strategy, the fact is every Mormon in the world accepts the gospel selectively. They may say, I accept all the doctrines, every detail. But when it comes to giving talks, to making decisions, to speaking to their friends about the church, they always select something that is of significance to them, whether it's the family or free agency or Christ or whatever. So it's just impossible to encompass the whole the whole gospel. You have to say, this is what I hold on to as giving me strength and guidance. And uh, on top of that, it would be a great mistake to give up those things that are good and rewarding uh, just because someone has persuaded you that the Book of Mormon can't be true. I mean, to abandon goodness in your life, that's a, that's a bad mistake. That's a bad mistake morally as well as in terms of your own personal salvation. You have to hold on to what's good uh, or else you're being bullied by the world around you. And so I think these people uh, have to find some way to emphasize the positive, as it were, and uh, and then sort of wait or just not mention or do whatever you want with the rest of the doctrines, but hold on to what, what is good. Uh, otherwise, um, you know, you're sort of casting off your own integrity. You, you don't want that, uh, that to happen. Well, thank you for that treatment of the Book of Mormon. Um, let's, let's now turn to the three and eight witnesses. I'm going to try and, instead of really digging into the history like I was doing too much in the, in the, in the beginning previously, I'm going to just try and get to the heart of the issues. So, um, basically, if you listen to Grant Palmer or if you listen to, um, you know, others who have written about the witnesses in a disparaging way, the, the picture they paint is that, um, that the Whitmers weren't necessarily the, the brightest of people they, uh, even Martin Harris, weren't necessarily the brightest of people. Uh, they followed people before Joseph Smith. Um, they they followed people after Joseph Smith. They they testified to the truthfulness of the the Book of Mormon and the plates and the angel or whatever. But at the same time, they left the church and they testified to Strang or to others and to other books and to other visions and other angels. Um, and so, uh, on the one hand, we feel like, and, and, and in your book, I was really touched by, by how you described how Joseph felt when he came back, um, from the, th the, the three witness experience. And why don't you just recount that real quick? Because that was pretty moving. The, uh, story is told by Lucy, his mother, that after returning from um, the, the three witnesses, he threw himself down on the floor and said, at last, I no longer have to 
carry this all by myself. I don't remember the exact words. Uh, now uh, there are others who have to bear testimony. So you had the feeling this poor kid was carrying the whole thing, and he knew he was surrounded by doubt uh, and intense skepticism. And now he had a few people that he could depend on to speak out on the basis of their own visionary experiences. Yeah. So let's let's jump back real quick. Um, it, the translation moves from from Pennsylvania to the Whitmer home. Is that right? Partly because of persecution and stress and other things, but it, it moves right. to the home, and the Whitmers become really central players in in this whole process. They 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 were witnesses to parts of the translation process. Is that right? Yes. Mm -hmm. Okay, and. And so the Book of Mormon uh, gets translated, it gets finished, and at some point uh, they start asking, they really start wanting to see the plates. Is that right? Well, Martin Harris is the one who put uh, the most pressure on to see the plates. But uh, the, the Whitmers and Oliver Cowdery also were very interested too, yes. And I even remember reading your book where it says that uh, Joseph says, you'll see the plates, and you'll not only see the plates, but you'll see the Liahona and the Sword of Laban, too. Is that right? That I don't recall. Did I say that? Uh, I, I, I'm pretty sure I read it, but it's, it's not a huge deal. So, so, then, um, so then at some point, Joseph says, today's the day. Is that right? What can you tell us just about the actual day? And just at a really high level. We won't dig into it. Well, why don't we get right down to the experience in itself, that they go into the woods and pray and yes. see Christ, or they see an angel and they see the plates. Okay. They see it in two different groups. Martin Harris sees it with Joseph, and the others see it um, together. Right. And, and, Martin, what, and, and Martin didn't feel like he was worthy at first, and so the, the other two, uh, Oliver and... And one of the Whitmers saw it without Martin, and then Martin had to come back and and re kind of pray again. Well, Joseph goes off and finds Martin praying, and they pray together. Okay, so um, I guess the big the big question here, I guess there are two questions that kind of strike at the core of of, of people who are kind of skeptical. The first is that. Um, the first is sort of the association with the uh, the money digging and the treasure digging. We we. We have the earlier accounts of where they'll go to some hill and they'll all sort of whip each other up into really believing that they're seeing something. And I think if I remember reading Brody, that's sort of, you know, the the allegation. And that's that, um, that there's some ability or propensity to to whip each other up into thinking that they're seeing something when they're really not. And that's where we get into what Grant Palmer talks about, the eyes of our understanding or seeing with our spiritual eyes. Um, and so, so let's start with that, and then I have a follow-up question. Mm -hmm. Well, this whipping up, up business is, uh, you know, a psychological theory that Joseph Smith had the capacity to get people all excited, and, and they saw things that didn't exist. But, you know, that's just, that's just a speculation about what might have happened. The, the key point is the spiritualized business because uh, 
the uh, witnesses did say that they saw these things with their spiritual eyes or the eyes of their understanding. And that's a great relief to people who are doubting this because it implies they didn't really see anything. Uh, it was just sort of something they imagined. It becomes illusionary. And therefore, the pressure of the plates being in actual existence is relieved. You don't have to worry about there actually being plates because these people just thought they saw plates. But the question is... Um, is it any more real if you see it with your spiritual understanding? And here I'm thinking of Charles G. Finney, the um, later evangelist who, in his time of skepticism, as a young lawyer in New York, uh, just a year after Joseph Smith's first vision, had a vision in the um, his law office after he'd been converted. He's converted in the afternoon out in the woods. He comes back to the law office. And in the dark of night, he sees Christ standing there and takes this as a sign of confirmation of his conversion. And in his diary, which or in his autobiographical account, which he wrote many years later, I think it was 50 years later, he said, I know he couldn't have really have been there it was just something in my mind, but it looked as if he were really there, and then sort of left it at that. So there was a, a feeling uh, among the Latter-day Saints, especially afterwards, that it was impossible to see God unless you were prepared. So it's almost a requirement that visions come through uh, prepared eyes or prepared mind. Uh, and that is true for others who use this phrase in those times. But as they experience it, it's just as real as if they were not with their spiritual eyes. And so it isn't just like it's sort of fuzzy or vague or blurry. It's, um, it's just that spiritual... Uh, items have to be viewed with uh, a spiritual understanding. So I'm not sure that the spiritual eyes means that um, they didn't actually experience it as a visual happening. It isn't just something they thought they saw in their heads. Yeah. So, I mean, a really condensed way to say that might be, you know, a spiritual experience or a spiritual miracle is a spiritual miracle. And to try and dissect it, it's a miracle. That's why you can't, if it were reducible to the material, it would no longer be viewed as a spiritual miracle. Is that right? And so, well, whether, you, so whether you want to attribute it to actual eyes or spiritual eyes or a combination of the two, 80% this or that, it's a miracle, it's spiritual, and there's no way to prove it. It's not a scientific thing. And so it's sort of not, it's a red herring, maybe? Well, something close to that. What I'm really trying to say is that they experienced it as physical, as if it was a physical experience. That is, when Finney looked, he saw Christ. He didn't say, uh, I'm just imagining Christ. He saw Christ. 
that's the way he, he emphasizes it. But he knew it had to be done through this mental process because he couldn't believe uh, he couldn't believe his own eyes is what it amounted to. He had to believe that that God had just created this in his mind. But the experience was as physical as if Christ were physically present. So I'm just saying that Martin Harris may have very, or David Whitmer might have said they, you know, there really were plates there. He saw them. He saw this angel, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, but that this would only be possible if he had been given spiritual eyes to do so. Hmm. And one of them seems to have been quoted as saying, I didn't see him as I see this pen here on the table. And so it seems like at least one of them was trying to distinguish between what a, a temporal experience is and and what a spiritual vision yeah. might be, right? It, it could be, except that uh, he's saying that, you know, it's, he may be saying it was more exalted. It was filled with glory. I was, my spirits were lifted. It, um, he's, I mean, you, you do have to face the fact these guys said over and over again they actually saw these things. It's, it's not like, uh, I mean, we keep trying to find some way to worm around their testimony by saying, well, once in a while they spoke about it as being spiritual when uh, most of the time they speak as if it's it's actual. So what is the 18... Do you, do you know, do you remember the 1836 event that Grant Palmer talks about where Martin Harris gets up in front of a bunch of people? Is it 1836 or 1838? Where, where the Kirtland Bank thing happens, everything's unraveling, and Grant Palmer says that in this climax of catastrophe... Martin Harris stands up in front of everybody and says, oh, no, we never really saw the plates with our physical eyes. It was a spiritual thing. What is that story, and is it credible, and why did he do that, and what was the impact of it? Uh, this um, statement that was uh, recorded in a letter by Stephen Burnett was given at a meeting in Kirtland in April 1838, uh, in which all the dissidents were gathering and trying to figure out what kind of a church to organize uh, now that uh, they'd agreed Joseph Smith was a fallen prophet. And Martin Harris was among them. And one of the big decisions they had to make was were th what were they going to keep out of the old church? They wanted to throw out a lot, uh, but they wanted to hold on to something. And one question was, should they hold on to the Book of Mormon? And Stephen Burnett was one of those, there were three or four others, who thought the Book of Mormon had to be jettisoned. And he used as evidence uh, the statement uh, of Martin Harris, uh, in which he took to mean that Martin Harris really did not see the plates, after all. And uh, what interested me about it is these guys were really dependent on evidence. It wasn't just a spiritual thing for them. They wanted to know, and the, the three witnesses and the eight witnesses really meant something to them, as did the scriptural prophecies. They make a reference to Isaiah 29, Ezekiel 37, too. Uh, and he writes back uh, after Martin Harris has made his statement that uh, we now see that he didn't really see the plates. But once again... It's that question of spiritual seeing versus actual seeing. These guys want plain old sight. 
they don't want anything like spiritualized. So he interprets Martin Harris's statement to mean he didn't really see it. It was just sort of part of his imagination. The interesting thing is that Martin Harris, uh, in the same meeting, uh, got up in the afternoon and said, uh, we certainly should not abandon the Book of Mormon. We know it's, uh, I know it's a true book, and um, affirmed everything he believed all along. And uh, George A. Smith wrote a letter of this meeting saying nothing about Martin Harris um, giving up on his witness, but uh, wrote back that he affirmed his faith as, as ever. So what I think it boils down to is this issue we were discussing before, which is becoming more and more interesting to me, what it means to see with spiritual eyes. For us, you know, that uh, decreases the value of a witness immensely. It means nothing. It's just his imagination. It's a psychological reality, not a physical reality. But for Harris and for others who heard these testimonies, it was just as real and persuasive as um, not spiritualized. So you don't really know what happens when they see a spiritualized. Do they actually see something like Charles G. Finney uh, did, uh, as I uh, referred in my previous conversation uh, with you, uh, or was it just sort of a phantasm in their imagination? So uh, anyway, it, it's got me very interested in this subject, which I think we definitely need to look into. Uh, but it also sort of leaves this evidence a little murky. It isn't exactly sure that he's repudiating his testimony. He's just saying the things we've heard before, that it was a, uh, a spiritualized experience, and until we know what that means, uh, we won't know exactly how to evaluate it. All right. So why? Uh, it, what do we know about why each of the of the three witnesses and the eight witnesses fell away, the ones that weren't Smith. So, you know, a lot of people would say, how can somebody have such an incredible vision? How can someone see the plates and have a testimony to the divinity of, of, jo of Joseph Smith's calling or whatever? You know, why, can you just tell us briefly why they fell away? Because I never, I always, it's sort of, I've been given the impression, oh, they were weak. Oh, they were sinful. Oh, they were bad people. But then I think some of these people sacrificed more than any of us will ever be called upon to sacrifice. And so I don't, I don't feel right to demonize these guys as being weak or lacking faith. I want to think that they may have had more faith than any of us. Mm -hmm. So can you tell us about how they fell away and whether their reasons for falling away were actually sympathetic versus they were just clueless or bumbling or, or lacked faith? Well, it's complicated. It's differs for each one of them, of course. Uh, I do think it's an error to demonize them uh, after the fact, saying because they fell away. And I think now there's an effort to avoid that. This recent conference on Oliver Cowdery at BYU really was an, uh, an attempt to, uh, to rehabilitate him and say this was a man of integrity and, and wisdom and we need to honor him, even though we did fall away from the church. I think it's, uh, you know, it's part of that overall loss of the first generation of leaders that occurs in the church. Virtually all of them, of his first strongest people, faltered in one way or another, so that it, it, there has to be a second generation 
that grows up, most of them in the later Corn of the Twelve, who uh, go on to become the, um, the leaders who take the Saints West. Uh, I, I think it's hard for us to appreciate um, the pressure on Mormons at that time. John Corll, whom we don't hear about so much, but who was really an eminent figure, a counselor to Edward Partridge and the bishopric, and significant in many ways in Missouri, and a very reasonable man, a good reporter, finally went to Joseph Smith and said, nothing you say is going to happen happens. We're supposed to establish Zion. We get kicked out of Zion. Wherever we go, we have these promises. Something wonderful is going to happen, and we end up being driven, beaten around, beaten up again. And so there's just this feeling that uh, it was just hard to carry on. And then you add to that fact that you've got all the personal abrasions within the organization as a whole and with Joseph Smith uh, and trying to, in Oliver Cowdery's case, trying to make a living for himself, trying to find some stable financial basis for his life and then being required by Joseph Smith to make all sorts of financial sacrifices and this and that was just too much for him and then of course the confusion over polygamy was he having an affair with Fanny Alger so if you're actually dealing with these people close up whether it's Joseph Smith or the people around him there's just innumerable irritations that grow up and uh, erode you and I think a lot of them, according to the stuff I've read, um, found ways of saying, I'm not abandoning my first testimony. Certainly that's true of David Whitmer. I, it's the church who left me, not me, the church. And it's possible to think of Joseph Smith as a fallen prophet. Why not think of him as a fallen prophet? So you have this moment of glory when the powers of God were with you, but then the, the church wandered off and the prophet stumbled, and uh, you have to carry on your life despite it all. So there are all sorts of ways that uh, can happen. We have a feeling of the in inevitability of the church, that it just had to be, and it, anyone who left it must have made a huge error. But at the time, it was anything but inevitable. It was tenuous uh, year after year. So um, it doesn't seem to me hard to uh, to imagine these lives sort of taking their own course uh, with uh, leaving Joseph Smith behind. Yeah, okay. And it, so, yeah, and with, with Oliver, you, you mentioned a lot of the things he was struggling with. I still don't have a sense for why the Whitmers fell away. Is there one or two issues that might have been top of their mind? Was it the bank thing? You know, what do we know what, what some of the key issues were for the Whitmers to make them fall away? Well, they fall away... Uh, separately and distinctly, but David Whitmer, I think, thought of himself, as Oliver did, as sort of the founding elders of the church uh, that deserved to be leaders alongside Joseph Smith. And David was always uh, jealous of Sidney Rigdon, felt that J Sidney Rigdon uh, led Joseph Smith down a primrose path. He objected to uh, the doctrines of priesthood as they developed. He just, he thought Joseph Smith made lots of, of errors. And I think as uh, he was sort of the, the power in the family and the others uh, followed along with him, uh, 
so uh, we are so accustomed to following the prophet, but as a mantra of our religion. But for these people, you know, you never knew when that prophet might head off in the wrong direction. And uh, I think David believed that uh, Joseph Smith did. And, and to some extent that that was fair because maybe Joseph Smith was learning as he went along and did make some mistakes. And so it's not, so that's that's valid, right? And so it's not for them too, too hard to jump from he's making mistakes to he's fallen. Is that correct? Right. Of, yeah. Right. Yeah. So what do we make of how to, what would you say to someone who says, "Well, you can't, you can't have it all. You can't, you can't say that we we value their credibility as 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 people um, whose testimony should be relied on." Yet at the same time, we said all sorts of nasty things about Oliver when he was excommunicated that he was, you know, doing counterfeiting and he was lying, etc. And and David Whitmer and in Martin Harris, they claimed that that God physically or, or in a dream or in a vision told them to leave the church and that they went on to follow other leaders and and be testaments to the other non-Joseph prophet leaders and their scriptures, etc. So how do how do we on the one hand rely on them as, as witnesses and at the same time say, well, when they were testifying to things that we happen to agree with, then we're going to accept their testaments as valid. But whenever they went off and testified of other things and claimed other visions, well, those were clearly, they are being deceived and it was Satan. How do you work through that? Or if I mischaracterize the history? No, that's, uh, I think that's a very good question. And, uh, you know, Richard Anderson is dedicating his life to proving that these people were uh, men of integrity from the beginning to the end of their lives, and therefore we can, can trust them. But I think uh, you always get in trouble if you think a person is going to be impeccable in every act of theirs. And um, they're just certain to have done something that was slightly dishonest or questionable in our eyes. Um, and that is inevitably going to cast a shadow on their, their original testimony. So we can't say that those testimonies are are you know, ironclad, that there's no questions at all that can be raised about the men or their lives. Um, I, th- I think the fact that they didn't, that you don't find many instances of them repudiating their testimonies, you're prompting me to go hunt up all of these, these uh, supposed repudiations to see where they stood. Um, you know, unless you can find um, really clear and consistent accounts of we were mistaken and I was wrong and I don't believe that at all now, which they could easily have done having left the church, uh, the testimonies have to stand as something you, you just can't dismiss uh, out of hand. They're, they, uh, they're there. Those words are there. So that's about all I can say. I'm not going to. I don't want to claim too much for them, but I also don't want to discount them and say they're absolutely worthless. That I think would be a big mistake. Right. 
This program has been a production of Mormon Stories Podcast. To comment on this episode or to peruse the archives of past episodes, please visit us online at mormonstories.org. Also, please consider supporting Mormon Stories Podcast by making a contribution today. Thanks again for listening.